Uh, we know God speaks the Bible to us. I uh, know he works by his spirit through his word. We need his uh, help and enabling. So let's ask him to be at work. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this uh, scripture. Thanks that you do speak it by your spirit, uh, that you by your spirit speak these words that Jesus spoke to us. Uh, please do by the same spirit work in us. Uh, that indeed we would leave a little different and become more and more and incredibly different. In your son, amen. Okay, so we're back in Mark's gospel, and Mark, really the whole book, he just tells us what we would have seen and heard if we'd been there. Every time Jesus speaks, he speaks with authority. Uh, He commands the evil spirit world and it has no option other than to obey he speaks change and his words shape reality the paralyzed walk the blind see the dead rise he teaches like what he says is true simply because he says it he speaks commands as if he has authority over everyone to whom he speaks the lord jesus commands and heals and speaks like you'd expect God to speak if he came among us. When we see Jesus clearly, we see that Jesus is the Lord God come to save and judge. Mark shows us Jesus' absolute authority. He keeps bringing us back, though, also to Jesus' forgiveness. Jesus is the friend of sinners. The friend of sinners who know they need forgiveness that he brings. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. On the cross, he drank the judgment we deserve. He is raised and gives life and forgiveness to all who come to him. He's the glorious man who suffered to bring forgiveness. He is the glorious resurrected Lord who rules for our good. Whether you're curious or not yet committed or or committed and not yet perfect, It's important to see these things. To see these things as we head into these snippets of Jesus' teaching for two reasons. First, because it's important we realize that Jesus claims the right to rule us in everything. He claims the right to rule you. And second, because we need to see that his instructions are for the forgiven. They show us why we need forgiveness. They show us, um, they, they tell us how to live as Jesus' forgiven people. They aren't how to earn forgiveness. Jesus paid the debt we owe. So we're going back to hear him more clearly. Uh, hear him more clearly on topics like the uh, greatness and living with the end in mind, marriage and divorce, entering the kingdom of God, authority, civil and religious, and the greatest commandments. We're going back to hear him more clearly because trusting Jesus to rule our lives generally plays out Monday to Sunday in specific areas and aspects of life. See, life as a disciple is different. How is it different? What's different about Monday to Sunday life? Mostly we'll be hearing it is as we read these passages. By the middle of chapter 9, where we're jumping in, uh, the disciples have begun to see who Jesus is, but they don't yet see him clearly. 
Now they have some sense of his glory. But when he speaks about his suffering, his death, his resurrection, they still don't get it. We're picking up straight after Mark's uh, second mention of Jesus predicting that suffering, death, resurrection. Uh, Verse 32, Mark tells us that they didn't understand, the disciples. Then he shows us that they don't understand by showing us what they think following Jesus means. So chapter 9, verse 34, they've been arguing about who's the greatest. See, thousands of men and women and children have been following Jesus. But in their minds, the 12 disciples are, well, they're the top 12. Uh, Peter recognized Jesus first, though, among them. Peter got to go up the mountain where Jesus was transfigured. Uh, But Jesus also took James and John with him. Who's the top of the top 12 is their question. Who's the greatest of the greatest? They've glimpsed Jesus' glory and they're each wondering how big a slice of it they can get. But when Jesus asks them about it, they're embarrassed to admit it. What Jesus says next goes in the exact opposite direction of what they have been talking about. Verse 35, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. See, a great disciple does two things. A great disciple knows they're last, the least important, the the most insignificant. And a great disciple is servant of all. They live like they're on earth for the benefit of others. Servants serve. They serve their masters. And they serve the people their master tells them to serve. That's what's going on here. Jesus is the Lord of his people. His people serve him. And his people serve the people Jesus tells them to serve. So Jesus is talking here to the disciples. Uh, when he called his first disciples, he said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. When he appointed the top 12, uh, it was so they could be sent out to preach and to cast out demons. He is their model for service, is the one who has come to give his life as a ransom for many. They serve him by serving as he served. They serve him by serving the ones he calls them to serve. Neither they nor we are called to treat other people as lords. We're called to treat the one who suffered for us as our Lord, and so to treat others as those we are here to serve. Christ's people serve him. He gets to tell us why we're here. He gets to tell us what we're for. We serve the people Jesus tells us to serve. As his servants, we're called to serve all people. So by faith, by trusting him, you can act as if you belong at the bottom. Like the reason you're in any room is to be a blessing to others. With careful thought, with deliberate action, you can help in ways that fit the way that God has wired you. Help in ways that fit what he's revealed in his word about what's good for you and others. Ways that fit their needs that you struggle to meet. Ways that fit their greatest needs, the one Jesus met as he gave his life as a ransom. 
Now, at times we'll need to wrestle to trust Jesus in that, to act as if we're servants. But as the gospel takes root and grows, and God works by his Spirit, we'll more and more find ourselves considering the interests of others above our own. By renewed instinct or by deliberate choice, nothing is beneath you. No one is beneath you. Not even other people's children. In the ancient world, children were kind of the most ignored people, the most unimportant. They had no power, they had no influence, they were the least great. So Jesus gets a child in among the, the disciples, he, he holds the child, and he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. See, no one is unimportant when how you treat him or her in Jesus' name is how you treat Jesus, and how you treat Jesus is how you treat the one who sent him. What does he mean by receiving a child or, or someone like him in his name? This is why I think he's talking about as his servant. See, the, the queen's staff, every you roll up to Buckingham Palace and you get welcomed by a servant, it'd be in the queen's name. She might not welcome you or she might not have them welcome you. But they do what she decides. They'll receive or refuse in her name as her servants. So receiving anyone or everyone in or anyone and everyone in Jesus' name is when we treat them differently because Jesus is our Lord. It's living as those who no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and is raised again. It's desiring their good on every front because Jesus calls us to do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. It's longing for their salvation because we serve the Lord who saves. You see the line between how we treat the least important and how we treat the most important. We get to honor Jesus when his lordship shapes the way we treat the least. We get to honor the living, true, and holy God when we honor Jesus whom he sends. Who whom he sent. This week, you won't meet a human who has nothing to do with how you treat Jesus and his father. Jesus highlighted children. It's another class of people that you're tempted to treat as less because of their race or, or, or their class or their nationality or their education. or Watch your instincts and see the opportunity to serve and honor Christ and so to honor his Father by aiming to be a blessing to all in his name. Love and serve them in Jesus' name. Love and serve all people as his servants. Doing the good he teaches is good in his name. The next thing we hear in Mark is John reporting uh, what he did, uh, what they did, when they saw someone casting out demons in Jesus' name. 
He says, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, either he's thinking it was a good thing, or he's beginning to realize that what seemed like a good idea at the time just wasn't a good idea at all. But at the time, they thought, this is outrageous. Jesus sent us to teach and cast out demons in his name. Now, some random bloke who has nothing to do with us is freeing men, women, and children from the oppressive power of evil spirits. It's time to stop it. It seems they were unsuccessful in stopping him, just the way it says it there. He was actually casting out demons in Jesus' name. It's clear that they'd lost sight of their job to point people to Jesus and to tell people to follow Jesus rather than to gather people to follow them. Jesus says, don't stop him. He gives three reasons uh, why they shouldn't. You see the word for, just repeated there, verse 39, 40, 41. First verse 39, the reason not to stop him is because no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. He can't do a miracle in Jesus' name and turn around the next moment and say Jesus is evil. The second reason for not stopping him is verse 30. No one who is not against us, sorry, the one who is not against us is for us. So they've missed the other edge of what Jesus said about Satan not casting out Satan and a kingdom divided against itself being unable to stand. Yeah, there might be pretenders who have nothing to do with Jesus, who treat his name like magic and achieve nothing. But Satan's work is being undermined here. And that's a win. What do you care whether Satan's grip on someone is weakened by someone secular? It doesn't matter who cuts the chains, it's so long as they're cut. Don't try to stop someone who's undermining Satan's work. That's the point here, verse 40. Then verse 41, the the third reason not to stop them, giving someone a cup of water, that's basic good manners. It was nothing special. It required no special reward. Kind of the least noticeable act of service that someone could do for someone else. And Jesus says with absolute certainty, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The disciples' costly service isn't the only service that God sees. God sees and rewards the least kindness shown towards them because they are Christ's people. He's talking about the least act of love done by someone who belongs to Christ because they belong to Christ. This third reason is getting to the heart, is getting to the motivation of what's being done. A barely noticeable act done in love for Christ's people because they are Christ's people. The disciples have been expecting God to see their grand acts and to reward them for the grand things they've done. Jesus is saying God doesn't just see grand acts. He sees the least service. That's helpful for us to know Monday to Sunday, isn't it? Uh, that God sees the extraordinarily ordinary things we do in service to him. Just turning up to the discipleship group. A quick prayer for a brother or sister when they cross your mind. A brief text. A look which says, I see you. 
God sees and will reward extraordinarily ordinary things done for Christ's people because they are Christ's people. It's helpful for us Monday to Sunday when the opportunities seem limited. But Jesus is mentioning it in this context because of how we see other people. There's a progression here between these, these three reasons he gives. These three reasons not to stop someone because they're not obviously one of us. They can't act in Jesus' name and immediately speak evil against him. Anything that undermines Satan's work, well, it's just, it's a win. And they may as well, they may well be doing it in loyalty and service to Christ their Lord. Just to be clear, Jesus is talking about what God approves, not who God approves. He's not talking about who's saved. In submission to him, we set a, a low bar for fellowship. You know, we're brothers and sisters with all who truly know Jesus. Christian unity isn't about uniting with people who are di- we're divided from. It's about recognizing the unity that Jesus has brought by bringing people into his body. But verse 38 to 41, I think they're actually about a lower bar. They're about recognizing good is good no matter who does it. It's, inappropriate. it's appropriate to feel sorrow when our paths cross people who think they know Jesus, but we suspect they don't. When religion is binding them, maybe they imagine that God forgives them, but it's just they have no space for God's shaping in their life. Or they imagine a Jesus who shows them how to earn their way into God welcoming them. It's appropriate to grave when friends have no room for Jesus. Whether Jesus they imagine or just no room for the true Jesus. We're called to proclaim him as he is. To proclaim him as we meet him in his word. To aim to help uh, others to see who Jesus is, what he did, why it matters. To call him to trust him. It's appropriate. But what's inappropriate is to aim to stop them doing good. Good is good no matter who does it. Yep, there are things to say about motives and the difference between uh, things done with and without trust in God. But Jesus isn't talking about that here. He's saying good is good no matter who does it. Whoever we see fighting Satan's work or fighting for truth and justice, caring for creation, they're doing good. Paul even rejoiced when people did the good of proclaiming Christ while they were aiming to make his life difficult by proclaiming it. Jesus pushes us to recognize good done no matter who does it. I think with that third reason, because you might just be seeing the beginnings of someone's trust in Jesus and care for his people. Don't stop them. Especially don't stop them because you might make them fall. That's the warning, verse 42. Don't risk making one of Christ's people fall. Here in the next few verses, the word translated sin is the stumble word we've come across before, scandalizo. 
It's the same word used uh, in Mark to talk about people who fall and fail in their commitment to Jesus. The ones who fall away because of tribulation and persecution in the parable of the soils, the people like Capernaum who took offense, who stumbled over Jesus, the disciples falling away when Jesus, their shepherd, is struck. It's got that trip over and fall fail. It's the sort of substituted uh, on a slide, uh, stumble and fall for the word sin in verses 42, 43, 45, 47. It's the stumbling and falling. Jesus says, verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble and fall away, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Great millstone, that's the commercial-sized donkey-powered millstone. No one survives being thrown into the sea with a rock that kind of comes up to their waist tied around their neck. They're sinking and drowning. But it would be better to go that way than to cause one of Christ's people to stumble and fall away. The image of inevitable drowning hints at how horrible the reward is for pushing a believer away from Jesus. Our aim in our relationship as church is to push in the other direction, to participate in God's work of keeping his people in step with the Spirit and not losing hearts. But none of, our, none of us can leave our progress to the rest. Verses 43 to 48 are about the internal temptations. The same pattern repeats for hand and foot and eye in verses 43, 45, 47. Whether it's hand or foot or eye that causes you to stumble towards falling away, you'd be better without them. Lose a hand, a foot, an eye. Lose the other ones too. Better off entering life crippled and unable to, unable to walk, unable to see, than to live out this life fully able and go to hell to unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Jesus warns because he loves. He speaks the reality that lies ahead. The word he uses for hell, you can see a footnote, Gehenna, is where his contemporaries used. It was a valley south of Jerusalem where rubbish was dumped and where it, stayed, it remained to rot or where it, where it burnt in the fires. Verse 48 mixes that uh, with Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, Isaiah 66, 24, which describes God's enemies slain in battle, rotting on the battlefield, endlessly eaten by maggots, fire endlessly consuming them. It's a picture, but it's not just a picture. Jesus uses it to give us a glimpse of what it is to go to God without his protection. It's part of his loving warning about the danger of facing God, facing his wrath, facing his perfect punishment. It won't be okay in the end for people who don't follow Jesus, and it won't be okay in the end for people who drift from Jesus. Jesus says, better to enter God's eternal kingdom, short of foot, a hand, and eye, than to keep them and go to hell. 
There, there have been people in history who have literally got the knife out. But chopping off and gouging out is a picture too. It's a picture, but not just a picture. It's designed to get our attention, to shock us, to underline how serious sin is, the reality of God's judgment, the horror of hell, the goodness of eternal life with God. Amputation is a good strategy when there's an untreatable infection in an extremity. But amputation won't stop sin. Back in chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 20, 23, Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, from the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. No knife cuts deep enough to cut sin out of the heart. Jesus calls his followers to watch out for sin that's getting a foothold. Getting a foothold in our desires, our attitudes, our our behavior, and to take aim. To kill it, to remove it. The temptation is to let it slide, to wait, to enjoy it just a little longer. To treat it like it's not a big deal. To think we're strong enough and we'll keep it under control, it'll just be a little thing. The temptation is to think that Jesus is overreacting. He probably isn't. He's probably right. He is right, isn't he? When we nurse sin, we're already acting as if Jesus is not our best guide. When we nurse sin, we're already acting as if Jesus is not our best guide. And sin spreads. Trust him on this one and don't let it slide. There's an army of ways uh, to apply the gospel to our sin. Uh, Perhaps you've had something in mind as we've been looking at this bit. Perhaps there's something you should have in mind as you look at it again. So what's what's your plan? How are you going to kill the sin that's killing you? Perhaps you can weaken its hold simply by stopping an opportunity. And that's kind of the cutting off. Perhaps cutting off is asking one of us to check in with you about whatever it is that's the struggle. A good accountability which understands the strength and the horror of sin and the goodness and glory of God. That sort of checking in. Perhaps we can think with you about how knowing God, who is good and great and gracious and glorious, will give you a new perspective on your sin. will help you kill it. Perhaps you can see how the gospel could kill your sin. And part of cutting it out is just working out daily reminders and regular prayer, more than daily, that God would apply his gospel change your heart. Certainly, we need to trust Jesus. Certainly, we need to trust Jesus and not let it slide. Don't let it slide because verse 49, briefly towards the end. Don't let it slide because verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. 
Uh, Jesus already talked of the danger of judgment. I think here he's pointing to the Old Testament sacrifices that were burnt with salt. It's the get-to aspect of following Jesus and pleasing him, pleasing our Father. He's saying give up on seeing whatever it takes because the one, because as one of Christ's people, you get to offer as a pleasing sacrifice your life. Salt has that positive association in verse 50, 51. Sodium chloride doesn't lose its saltiness. Um, the impure salt, the, the sodium chloride can leach out. You're just left with something bitter. Um, apparently also salt can be treated and cut in with other white compounds and treated again and cut in with other white compounds so there's almost no salt left and it's useless. Either way, once it ends up unsalty, it's worthless. Christ people aren't to be like that. Christ's people are to keep being different as Christ calls us to be. A key aspect of that, verse 50, is our commitment to one another, living at peace with one another, not fighting about who's the greatest, but devoting ourselves to love and serve one another. Following Jesus does mean life will be different. Uh, What's different Monday to Sunday? Well, we've seen a few things. It's wrong-headed and it's wrong-hearted to want to be the greatest of the greatest unless you're thinking, I want to be the servant of all. It's short-sighted to try to stop good because of who's doing it. Better to live with the end in mind. God will reward some of those acts we feel like stopping. God will reward the words and acts that knock Christ's people off course punish. God will judge and condemn those who give sin space until they finally give up on Jesus. And God is pleased by and delights in his faithful rescued people. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we approach you not on our own, not as those who claim to be perfect, because we're far from it. Thank you that we approach you as the God who welcomes us in your Son, who has brought forgiveness through Jesus, who gave himself as our ransom. Thank you that for those who trust you, we get to be enabled by your Spirit to live to please and honor you. Please to shape our heads and hearts with these words. Help us to see greatness in being determined servants of all. Ask that where we see you working to bring good through surprising people that would be glad in it. That would live with the end in mind. That would be cautious and deliberately careful towards your people that we might see you keeping them that would be ruthless with sin in our own lives. Trust in Jesus that he is our best guide in calling us to give it away. That instead we would live to please and honor and delight you, our faithful God. Father, please work it more and more by your spirit through your word. In the Lord Jesus. Amen.